Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. We are so glad that you are here with us today. It's great to be in this place, to be in this sanctuary whenever we can be, but I hope that whether you are a newcomer or you are a longtime attender of this church, that when you're here, you'll take an opportunity not only to look around this room, but to look around our church at the various pieces of art, um, the, the various pieces on display around the church. We have quite a collection of, I think, beautiful and interesting things in this church. You look around the, the windows here in the sanctuary, you look at the carvings and things like that. There's much to keep you engaged and, visible and, uh, and thinking about faith even when you were bored to tears by whatever I am saying up here. Plenty of good stuff to look at. But I wanted to mention one thing to you in particular. I'm gonna ask them to put the slide up on the screens for you. This is a tapestry up in Covenant Hall and it is a tapestry depicting the story that we'll be studying today. It's a tapestry of the parable of the sower and or really parable of the soil, uh, soils. You can't really see the sower in this parable or in this tapestry, but this is hanging on the back wall in Covenant Hall, which is our upstairs teaching hall. And it has been there for years, long before I got here, but I've been teaching and preaching and leading people in that room for about five years. And I never really noticed this, this tapestry, which was right, literally right in front of my face for five years until this past week. And I, I would like to say it was because I was studying this passage and it just came to my mind, it came to my attention, but it was actually one of the members of our staff who said, oh, that's, a par that's the parable of the sower. And I looked at it, it's like, huh, you're right, it is. And so, but I just think it's a wonderful graphic image of, of the parable. And, and that's an important thing to note because you know, what is a parable? A parable is a word picture. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second, but whenever we see a picture like this that is full of symbolism, we need to know a little bit about what it means. And last week, we actually read Jesus' preaching of the parable of the sower. And this week, we are going to again address that parable by looking at Jesus' explanation of what the parable means. So beginning in Mark chapter 4 in the 13th verse, if you would read along as I read aloud, I'm going to be reading uh, up here, but you can read along with the screens or using your own Bible or using the bulletin. But the Lord says this about this parable. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you, un how then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the, those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word 
and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Now, I've already made reference to, and Jesus described this story as a parable. What exactly is a parable? Well, technically, the word parable means something that is placed alongside something else for the purpose of clarification. Think about a picture next to a definition in a dictionary. The picture is placed there so you understand better the words as they are defining the concept. So it's a picture that helps illustrate or describe or or clarify the meaning of the concept. I like to think of parables like this. Parables are like fishing tackle. They are stories and there is a hook hidden in the bait. The parable itself is the story, that's the bait, and the hook inside is the word of God. And so a parable was a story that Jesus would use to teach people things about the truth of God. And when Jesus tells a story, what he's doing is he's using that bait to set set them up to take the hook that will ultimately change their lives. Now, last week we discussed that there are really two layers to this parable, to this story. There is the deep story, and then there is the surface story. And last week we discussed that the deep story of this parable is about him. It is a parable pointing to Jesus's road to the cross and the resurrection. It's about how Satan tried to snatch away the word of God by tempting Jesus to abandon his mission. How he was first celebrated by the crowds and then rejected by the mob who yelled to crucify him. It was about how he was crucified and killed with thorns pressing into his brow. But then we see that the story ends with the seed being buried in the earth, planted, and like a seed rising again in a resurrection that has produced a harvest of millions of believers, millions of followers from generation to generation that continues until this day. And so the deep story, as we discussed it last week, is about Jesus. And this is the hidden story that he wanted the insiders to know. It's a blueprint that reveals all that would happen to fulfill God's plan and Jesus's mission. But the surface story, the familiar story, that's what we're going to be talking about this week. The surface story is about us. This is the story for public consumption. This is when the parable gets personal, when this story becomes our story. 
So the question that we need to be asking ourselves is this. What happens when the word of God lands on us? What happens when the word of God lands on you? What happens when the word of God lands on me? Jesus explained the parable like this. The seed is the word. In verse 14, Jesus tells us plainly that the sower sows the word. The seed is the word. Now we know from the New Testament that the word is not just a philosophy. It's not just a slogan. It's not just an idea or a mantra or a doctrine to believe. The Bible tells us that the word is not simply a message, that the word is a person. And that person is Jesus. The word is the gospel. And what that means is that the seed, the word, is both the person of Jesus and the truth about Jesus. So the word is both the person of Jesus and the truth about Jesus. Jesus. Remember the, the first words of the Gospel of John. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then jumping down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus. John's Gospel tells us that Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Logos. He is God's mind. He is God's will, his wisdom, his character, his divinity, his essence, his very person made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is God's revelation of himself. In other words, he is what God wants us to know about himself. This is what God wants us to know about himself that we can comprehend. He is what God wants to communicate about who he is. And so this is not just a teaching about God that is sown into the world. It is not just that the message, the truth about God came into the world. It is that God himself, the word made flesh, has come. And so the word is this. It is the person of Jesus and the truth about Jesus. Jesus is not just the messenger. He is the message. He's not just the teacher. He is the subject. He is the seed and his story is the seed of our story. Now that's the seed. The seed is the word. The different soil situations describe four ways that people respond to Jesus and his truth. In this parable, Jesus is depicting the age-old reality that different people hear the truth of God and respond to the truth of God differently. Some will receive it, some will reject it. Now, how does he describe these four situations? Well, first, he describes the seeds on the path what I call ignorance. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. He depicts it in the parable as birds coming and snatching seeds off of the path. He says, this is the situation for people who fall prey to ignorance. 
Maybe they're just too busy to learn the truth of God. Maybe there's no one to teach them or nobody in their lives cares enough to teach them the word of God, the truth of Jesus. But according to Jesus, Satan is working overtime to keep people ignorant of the truth, to keep people in the dark about the light of the world. The sad fact is that some people will just never be allowed or have the opportunity to hear or know the good news of God's love. They'll never have access to the word of God in their own language. We see this openly in countries like Iran and North Korea and China. Right now, where the suppression of the Christian faith is on the rise and the government is trying to squeeze out any belief system that competes with Communist Party dogma. But you know what? We even see it in our own country. As religion is more subtly pushed out of the public square, pushed out of religious, uh, pushed out of public discourse, pushed out of schools and marginalized in universities. You know, every year it seems that the word of God, the faith upon which this country was founded, the faith of our forebears becomes less and less familiar to people. It's stolen, it's snatched away as our culture becomes more and more ignorant of the truth, as it becomes more and more secular, more and more materialistic. It's canceled from our culture erased from our textbooks, revised out of history, mocked in the media and entertainment, and squeezed out of science. And the result is that people never get the truth because they're never allowed to hear it. And the problem is that people just don't know what they don't know anymore. And in the absence of that truth, that vacuum is filled up by all kinds of isms. You know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about isms, don't you? Those philosophies, those ways of thinking, those, those lies or distortions that seem all important in one generation or another. But the bottom line is this. How many people are going to die ignorant, never knowing that God is real and that he gave his life to prove that he loves them. How many people are going to die like that? Next, the seeds on the rocky ground, tribulation or persecution. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. This is great. I love this. And when they have no root, and the, but they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The truth gets to these people. They hear a sermon or they read a book or they talk to a friend or they go to a, a conference or a retreat and they are excited by God. They're excited by the concept of Christianity. They're excited by a work project or a mission opportunity. They're excited about something. But then real life happens and pain and disappointment comes along and drives away that enthusiasm. This failure attacks us at the point where we begin to think of religion in terms of rewards and, and feelings instead of relationships. 
This is the faith that fails when the cost of suffering just gets too expensive. People begin to lose heart and they lose nerve. The things that kill a shallow faith can be trivial and flippant. They can be things like the idea that faith is no longer fashionable. Yes, I went to that conference and I got really excited about Jesus, but if I wear my religion on my sleeve, I'll alienate potential clients or I won't be respected or popular or respected among my peers or I will become irrelevant in my social circle. It just starts to look a little too expensive. But the reasons can also be profound and tragic. If God was real, I would not have lost my job. If God cared, then he would not have let my sister die of cancer. If I had not been so public about my faith, my family would not be ostracized and I would not be in prison. As long as things are going our way, hmm, yes, God is in his heaven. But when suffering comes, when persecution comes, or the pressure builds... Discipleship is abandoned. And the reason it's abandoned is because the gospel is seen either as a cause of the pain or impotent to stop it. It no longer produces, it no longer settles the equation in the cost-benefit analysis. And people lose their trust in God. People begin to believe either that he isn't real, that he isn't relevant, that he doesn't care, or that he can't make a difference. Third, Jesus points to the seeds among the thorns, distractions. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things. These are the idols that distract us, that seduce us, or subdue us with fear. Again, religion is fine as long as we don't get too excited about it. The gospel is fine, Jesus is fine, but who's going to pay my mortgage? Who's going to cut my taxes? Who's going to represent my interests? I mean, eternal life sounds great, but honestly, there's some other more pressing needs, other things I want more right now. There are too many other things to worry about. And after all, why should God be in charge of my life? It's my life. It's my body. It's my money. Why should he be in charge? And what happens is that at best, at best, faith becomes a part of my life. It's like an accessory, like a belt or a handbag. And our idols become, well, everything else. From lifestyle to security to wealth to fame and power. Our idols can be success, addiction, fear, sex, even other forms of spirituality. 
We can give in to the idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. These are all the classic idols. These are all the classic distractions that compete with Jesus for our full attention. I mean, sure, we support Jesus as long as he supports us, as long as he backs our social views, our political views, our moral views, our economic views. But for the most part, Jesus is really just a useful accessory to our lives. He's a part of your life, but he's never your Lord. He exists to give us what we want, to bless us, more like Santa Claus than the Savior. And, you know, he's all right until he gets in my way or in the way of my ambitions. But then you better step aside. These are all the thorns that choke us out from the only thing that will ever truly satisfy our insatiable appetites, our greatest needs, and our deepest desires. Because as St. Augustine once said, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I love the way John Piper says it. He says, our problem is not that we want too much or that we ask for too much or that we ask too much of other things. Our problem is that we are satisfied with too little. We are satisfied with other things. We settle for less when we could have God. We settle, and it chokes out our faith. The fact is, the truth is, that these soils are not discreet. They are not separate. There's something here for everybody. And this list is not even exhaustive. You know, most of us, all of us are actually a mixture of all of these soils. All of us have our own ways and reasons for ignoring the word of God or belittling it or mocking or rebelling or just plain old not caring about God. And what it boils down to is that we just don't take God seriously. Not in our work, not in our public life, not in our private lives, in our relationships, in our culture, in our economics, in our finances. We just don't take God seriously. Rather than love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength, we damn him with faint praise. So we're actually a mix of all these soils. But here's the good news. That's not the end of the story. Finally, says Jesus, the sower sows the seed and something extraordinary happens and he describes the good soil, the harvest. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This last description is not just a description, it is a promise. 
And in it, God shows that he can grow something even in dirt. I mean, this story, even though the first three phrases, first three clauses all seem to talk about rejection, this story is ultimately not about rejection. This story is about harvest because the gospel is not about failure. It's about transformation and victory. You see, this story is really not about the dirt. This story is really about the seed. Soil can be hard-packed, it can be rocky, it can be thorny, it can even be rich. But we know that no matter what it is, no matter what it is, by itself, dirt is dormant. It is lifeless. And that's how the Apostle Paul described our spiritual condition too. Lifeless. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not that you were sick, not that you were wounded, not that you were lost. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. No matter who you are. I mean, here's the truth. It doesn't matter how rich you may be. It, may not, it doesn't matter how how good looking the soil is. It doesn't matter if you came from a great area or a great family. The truth is even the best soil is still dead dirt. And without the seed, nothing is going to grow. Without the seed, it remains dead. It remains lifeless and barren, perhaps full of potential but dead as dirt. But through the seed, God takes that barren dirt and blesses it with life. What makes the difference? The seed. The seed. Life comes. Transformation comes. Because God sows the seed into our lives. It's the seed that brings life where there was once only deadness. And that is what he has done. He has sown the truth of Jesus Christ and the spirit of Jesus into our lives. God sent Jesus Christ into our world and into our lives because he wants to and he loves to see new life where there was once only dead dirt so what do we do with this what do we do with this parable well we first realize that jesus didn't come just to change our lives he came to change the world the lives of 30 60 100 fold and so the Lord sowed his seed into the lives of his disciples so that they would be transformed and grow and bear fruit. And then he commissioned them to sow the seed, the word they had received to others who would then be transformed and grow and bear fruit. And so the seed 
to others who would then be transformed and grow and bear fruit and sow the seed to others who would then sow and grow and so on and so on. And yes, in my notes, I have that S-O-W on, S-O-W on. But they would keep sowing and sowing. And through God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord has empowered his people to be his body that keeps sowing the seed of God's word in Jesus Christ to the world. And so what that means for us, what this parable means for us is that God is calling us to do four things, to sow, to water, to wait, and to watch. First, to sow. Our job is to sow the seed and trust God to bring the growth. Romans 10, 14 and 15 says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What that means, Presbyterians, is we have to take on the work of evangelism. Now, I know that Presbyterians are scared of evangelism. A friend of mine once asked me, what have Presbyterians ever contributed to evangelism? I told him, that's easy. We've contributed restraint. But the fact is, we have got to introduce people to the truth of Jesus Christ. People who've never heard it before. We can't just wait for other people to tell them the story. We have to tell them our stories. And we have to tell them his story and how Jesus Christ has changed our lives. We have to tell them our personal stories. And we as a church have to reach out. We have to sow the seed because how are they going to believe if they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without somebody telling them? We have to sow. Second, we need to water Our job is also to encourage and nourish and water those who have already been introduced. We don't always get to people first, so we need to to water those who have already heard. Paul wrote this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. See, growth is not a one-time event. It's not a single altar call or a single meeting or a single retreat event. It's a lifelong process. And so we need to equip people. We need to educate people. We need to feed them and guide them and protect them as they grow. We need to water them. Next, we need to wait. We need to wait patiently. Paul says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Our job is to sow the seeds. Our job is to water the seed. But it is God who gives the growth. What that means is we have to be prepared to wait. Here's what we know about seeds. They take time to grow. Growth is not instantaneous. It happens over time. 
But that's frustrating. Here's the thing. We sow the seed, but we can't see anything happening. Why? Because all the good stuff takes place underground, down in the dirt where we can't see it. I mean, we are sowing and we don't even know what kind of soil we're dealing with. I mean, one person may seem like fertile soil and, and not be, but then the random center over here may seem like he would never be receptive to the word of God and he is more fruitful than anyone else you've ever known. And you know what? I'm sure that the disciples often asked, why aren't they getting this? What's the problem? Waiting is the hardest part. But God is doing his work. The scripture says, the word that goes forth from my mouth shall not return to me empty. Now here's something that I know is true about many of you within my field of vision because you've told me this, because you've talked to me about this. Right now, you are worried about somebody. You are praying. You are worrying, you are waiting, you are trusting that God is going to do something. But you aren't seeing it yet. You aren't seeing any fruit. And it seems like the harder you pray, the faster they flee. And I know what that's like, because that's where I am too. Waiting, worrying my heart breaking and praying. But here's the truth. God planted the cross and resurrection of his son in the ugliest dirt and hurt of world history. And God the Holy Spirit right now is doing the transforming work of the cross and the resurrection in the dirt and the hurt of our personal stories and in the lives of the people that you love. And so I just want to tell you right now, no matter how hard it hurts, no matter how much you're worried, no matter how hard you're praying, right now, that God is working under the soil even though you can't see it. Right now, maybe all you see is dirt. But right now, he is doing what only God can do. And you've got to trust that. And most importantly, you've got to trust him. Because this passage is not mostly about rejection. This passage is mostly about hope and victory. And even though we can't see it, God is working under the soil to bring a great harvest. Not just for many people, not just for a hundredfold or sixtyfold or thirtyfold, but for that one person for whom you are praying and that you dearly love. That one person that you care most about. And so that's why we finally need to watch expectantly. Ultimately, this story is not about what we have to do. It's about what God is doing.
Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. And he knows not how. He's saying, you have to trust God. A farmer can't plant expecting failure. He plants expecting growth. And so we plant and we water and we expect things to grow. We sow hoping that God will do his work in the dirt. Not because we trust our own skill, but because we trust in God's power to bring life from deadness. And I know you're thinking it because I'm thinking it, but what about all those soils where the seed found no purchase? What about the birds and the packed earth and the rocks and the thorns? Well, you know what? Packed soil can be broken up and turned. Rocks and thorns can be cleared away. But it is God who prepares the soil to receive the seed. God, yes, God works after the seed of his word is sown. But I tell you, beloved, he was also there working before it was sown as well. Before we ever say a word or pray a prayer or sow a seed, God is already there preparing the soil. And it is God who prepares the heart, who prepares the ear to hear his word. He who has ears, let him hear. Sow water. Wait and watch. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus does his work of transformation and restoration by planting his word the love of the cross and the power of the resurrection into the dirt and the hurt of our lives. And he takes the soil and he turns it into fruit. He takes our dead dirt and turns it into new life. Seeds take time to grow. But the harvest is going to be huge. We pray with me. Lord, the hardest part of sowing your seed is trusting you to bring the growth. It would be easy if every time we threw a seed onto the ground, if every time we talked about you, people's lives would change and immediately they would be transformed and restoration would take place and relationships would be healed. But that's not the way it has worked. That is not the way you have ordained it to be. Rather, you are working in the hurt and the dirt of our lives. But under the earth, you are doing amazing things. So Lord, give us the patience the patience to see the growth that only you can bring. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.